Well, I want to start with a disclaimer. They say you should never begin by apologizing, but I'm going to do that. I am not an expert on church conflict. I have no intentions of taking this on the road as a show. I have no intentions of hanging out a shingle as the great mediator of church conflict and the guy who has all the answers. But I have experienced about as bad a church conflict as you can possibly go through. And I have lived to tell about it. And I did not get so disillusioned that I left the ministry. What's more, I kept my marriage intact. In fact, it became stronger. And most importantly, my children. And we have four of them. My children did not give up on the church. They did not become disillusioned. I don't want to sound like the hero of my own story, because I'm not. And I'm always hesitant to share things, because sometimes it can sound like, you know, as I said, you're the hero of your own story. I remember Don Sanukian, who was one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, or maybe I heard him or we got to know him, he became a good friend. But I remember he said the problem with personal illustrations is the only time you use them is when you're the hero of your story. And that's a problem. Uh, There's a lot of emotion that is, for me, right beneath the surface. And so if I get emotional this morning, it's just an evidence that I don't think you ever get over these hurts. I want to start by, by telling you my story. Shortly after I graduated from Dallas Seminary in 1979, Christianity began a series of books called The Leadership Library. And I began collecting that series of books. And the first one was published in 1985, and I'm not sure if you've read it, but it's a book that's still in print and still worth reading. And it's entitled Well-Intentioned Dragons. And it deals with church conflict. And this is what Marshall Shelley writes in the introduction. He says, Dragons, of course, are fictional beasts. Monstrous reptiles with lion's claws, a serpent's tail, bat wings, and scaly skin. They exist only in the imagination. But there are dragons of a different sort, decidedly real. In most cases, though, not always, they do not intend to be sinister. In fact, they usually are quite friendly. But their charm belies their power to destroy. And then he writes this paragraph. Within the church there are often sincere, well-meaning saints, but they leave ulcers, strained relationships, and hard feelings in their wake. They don't consider themselves difficult people. They don't sit up nights thinking of ways to be nasty. Often they are pillars of the community. Talented, strong personalities, deservingly respected. But for some reason, they undermine the ministry of the church. They are not naturally rebellious or pathological. They are loyal church members, convinced they are serving God, but they wind up doing more harm than good. They can drive pastors crazy or out of the church. You know, I remember when I read this book years and years ago, and the stories that are contained in this book, I thought to myself, those stories are embellished. I mean, you know, you always want to embellish a story to make it seem more appealing than it is. But I came to the realization after what I went through that there is absolutely no embellishment on the part of those stories Nor is there an embellishment on my part. Everything that I'm about to tell you happened. And I could spend literally hours telling you. I have a huge file that I've kept on this part of my life. And as I was going through it, I came across something that I got from my cousin in Seattle. My wife and I happened to be up there. And it was something that I read and I thought, could I get a copy of that? And he said, sure. And it says, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to hide the bodies of those people I had to kill because they ticked me off. And I thought, that's 
that's the way that I feel. You know, the first ten years of my ministry were absolutely wonderful. I pastored a church in North Dakota for three years. I then spent seven years at a church in Omaha, Nebraska that was absolutely wonderful. But then I went to a church in the suburbs of Detroit that was absolutely wrought with problems. And here's how I got there. It started on January 18, 1989, with a young man who had been my youth pastor, who had gone to this church in Michigan, called me. And he said that the pastor of the church had hung himself. He committed suicide. He hung himself in the bathroom, which was off his office. Uh, John was a graduate of Grace College of the Bible, and Pastor Ken had hung himself. And that summer, John was scheduled for ordination. And he had asked me prior to Pastor Ken's committing suicide for me to come and speak at his ordination. And I said, I'd be glad to. Well, because at that time they were without a pastor, they asked if I would also come and do pulpit supply and then speak that evening for the ordination. And at John's reception following the ordination service, the pulpit committee approached me and asked if I would consider coming there as a potential candidate. Knowing what had happened, I said, there's two things I'd like you to do. Number one, I would like a copy of his last sermon so that I can listen to it and see if there were any telltale signs as to why Ken did what he did. And the second thing I asked for was a copy of his memorial service that I could listen to. My wife and I happened to be going to Dallas the weekend we got the tape. We were on our way to Dallas for uh, the 50-year celebration of Dallas Seminary. And I can remember Connie and I, we were driving along in the car, and we were listening to that tape. And I can still hear him as he was preaching from the book of Numbers, where he was talking about the children of Israel, how they were disunified. And I can still remember, I can hear his voice pleading with the people to be unified. And then he said, no matter how great your problem, he said, our God is great. 24 hours later, he took his life. And then we listened to the funeral. And it was the most bizarre funeral that I had ever listened to for a man who committed suicide. You would have thought that he had died tragically in an automobile accident. Because they swept everything under the rug. I've done my share over the 40 years I've been a pastor of... Funerals for suicide victims. Speak the truth. Call what they did wrong, but do it with compassion. But in this case, they said nothing. And there was a pattern that was in that church. And that is that sin was never dealt with. The church was started in the early 50s by a man named Adolph Brown. And he pastored there for 25 years and the church grew. It was in an area of Warren, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit, which if you're familiar with it, that is where the General Motors Tech Center is. And it was an area that was just absolutely booming. And as a result, the church just absolutely exploded. But here's what I found out after I got there. The pastor's associate who went with him to California when he left Michigan, had in California multiple affairs with women in the church. And I later came to the realization that he had probably had multiple affairs in the church that I was now pastoring. And so the church had a history of sweeping problems under the rug. That was problem number one. Second was looking back, I overestimated my leadership ability. I was in my late 30s when I went there. And I was on fire. I thought I was this great, dynamic leader. I mean, honestly, what's there not to love? Right? Really? You know, what's there not to follow? 
But the biggest mistake I made, number three, was that I hired a minister of music. And there were red flags after red flags after red flags, and I ignored them. And when it came to the realization that he needed to be fired, the board didn't do it. We were divided on the issue. They had this stupid notion that you have to have complete unanimity on the board to make any decision. Now that's all well and good if you have good and godly men. But if you have immature, godless men, wicked men, it creates a boatload of problems. And I can remember after all of the turmoil that I was going through, when I was absolutely at my lowest, I went away to a friend's cottage. And I can still remember my wife as I got in the car. She was the only one along with the people whose cottage I was using who knew where I was going. And I went away for three days, two nights. And the last thing she said to me was, Doug, you better not do anything stupid. She knew what had happened to the last pastor. Well, when I got there, I literally took a sheet of paper and I wrote right down the middle and I wrote, stay and go. And I listed all the reasons for going, and there weren't many, and I listed all the reasons for staying. That night I went to sleep, and for the first time in weeks, I slept through the night. I don't know what it was. And I woke up the next morning, and I know we're cessationists here, but God spoke to me. Now don't get flipped out. My older brother's really big into this. But I can still remember God gave me words that were from a hymn that I had listened to en route to that college. And the words were these. Nobody loves you like Jesus loves. Nobody cares like you. He cares. You die, he died that you might live again. And I thought, that's it. God loves me. My wife loves me. My kids love me and my kids respect me. And they know that I'm not the phony that everybody thinks I am. And it just made all the difference in the world. And following the following Sunday, because we had to make some statements as the board, we had what we called back then Black Sunday. And it was a time where literally, as the announcement was being made by the then chairman of the board, we had people literally storm the platform and took over the service. We had a large church, an auditorium that would seat about a hundred and, or rather a thousand people. And there were probably about five, maybe six hundred people there. And 150 people walked out the door and we never saw them again. I mean, it was just, you, you, you can't imagine what it's like to go through that. And we brought in denominational officials we, we, over a long period of time, with, with a lot of meetings, a lot, a lot of heartache, uh, we, we basically split as a church, and I got to stay, and I stayed for another year before I made the decision to go ahead and resign, and they vindicated me. And I'll never forget, we had a a meeting and there were people that were coming in. They were in a, it was in a room like this and there were probably about twice as many as are in this room. They were supposed to come in setting up appointments where they were for 30 minutes with the denominational officials and they were going to tell what their grievances were. Well, they all came in together and they wouldn't leave. And I remember that night, it was a Saturday, we went in, I, the, the denominational officials were there and they said, all right, we'll, we'll talk tomorrow. And I said, no, Jim. I said, we're going to talk tonight. I said, I want to talk to you in my office. And I can remember going into the office, and I literally sat behind my desk. I put my head down, and I bawled like a baby. And I said, Jim, this is so unfair. This is so untrue. Everything they're saying is a lie. And, you know, I was expecting a little bit of love. And he, he goes, are you done? And it was like, what? Nope. Pat on the back. Doug, we love you. He said, Doug, we know the history of this church. We know what they've done with other pastors, how they've chewed them up and spit them out. And they decided that this was going to be the time where they said, no, we're not going to let that go on anymore. 
And, you know, I kind of mopped myself up and preached the next morning. And the next night, there was a, a meeting, and the denominational officials said, you know, um, we're standing by the elder board, we're standing by Pastor Hornock. And again, we had another hundred people walk out the door. So it was a really, really challenging time. So I want to share with you ten lessons that I've learned about church conflict. And again, I could spend the entire day talking about it. But number one, these are the rules for engagement. And the first is this. Realize that this is a spiritual battle. Satan is behind all the dividing and corruption that takes place in a fellowship. Paul said in Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There were confirmation after confirmation after confirmation that this wasn't just a personality issue. This was a spiritual battle. When I got there, the the prominent, and every church has them, that layman who is the Bible expert. You know what I'm talking about? Never went to Bible college, never went to seminary, but he knows the Bible better than anybody in the church as well as the pastor. His name was Bob. He had the largest Sunday school class, probably about 75 people in it. And he came into my office one day, and we sat down. And as the conversation progressed, I said, Bob, it's evident to me that you want me to resign. And he said, yes, I do. And I said, Bob, I said, you need to understand something. I said, I'm not a stubborn man. I'm really not. I said, I came in obedience, and I will leave in obedience. And I said, I have prayed earnestly about this, and I do not feel that that's what God wants me to do. And I will never forget as he sat across from my desk, he looked at me and he said, Doug, I just want you to know, I prayed for the last pastor to leave, and I was surprised how God answered my prayers. Now remember what the last pastor did? He committed suicide. Paul told the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourself, to the whole flock of God, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, and, listen, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So number one, realize that this is a spiritual battle. Second, teach and remind the people often what the Bible says about church unity. God has called the church to be unified. Philippians 2.2 says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. And you can read all of those various passages and, and you'll see over and over again, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says there's six things that the Lord hates. And one of them is false witnesses who breathe out lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. And you know what? We often look at that verse, but we forget what precedes it. Because Proverbs 6, 12 through 19 says a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. Now this might shock some of you. But realize that there are some bad and evil people in the church. What a novel idea. People that Satan will use to absolutely destroy, discourage a pastor and divide his people. There is a book that if you do not have, it is my gift to you this morning for coming. I want you to take this book. I press, I I, Asked the elders of our church. I said, I'm doing a seminar. I would like to be able to give this 
to everybody who comes to the meeting. And I said, could we as a church pay for it? And they said, yes. This is the best book I've ever read on antagonists in the church and church conflict. Kenneth Hauck is a Luther, a godly Luther, a born-again Luther. Um, he may not cross his I's and dot his T's like we do theologically, but this book is filled with so much helpful, valuable information. When you leave at the end, everybody take a copy. And if you know of somebody, I've got 25 copies, so we should have plenty. So if you know of a pastor going through conflict, you take one for him. But make sure everybody here in the room, first of all, gets, gets a copy. But here's what he says. He says, antagonists are not just misguided and misunderstood people. They are out to hurt others, and they do. Sooner or later, most individuals and congregations encounter antagonists. In addition to churches, they turn up at school board meetings and healthcare settings. You can find them among parents at Little League games or band booster associations. They disrupt neighborhood associations, fraternities and sororities, as well as volunteer organizations. In short, they can be anywhere. He goes on and he says, Antagonists, although few in number, have the potential for disproportionately disrupting or destroying the ministry of any congregation as well as the peace of mind and well-being of everyone in the congregation. And then he goes on and he defines it. He says antagonists are individuals who on the basis of non-substantive evidence go out of their way to make insatiable demands usually attacking the person or performance of others. These attacks are selfish in nature, tearing down rather than building up, and they are frequently directed against those in leadership. You know, there's some key, key phrases in this. This is not inspired, but this would be worth exegeting. He says non-substantive evidence. The arguments that antagonists present are typically founded on little or grossly misrepresented evidence. They tend to quibble over trifle, Trifles, providing strong proof of irrelevant points or exaggerate the positions of their opponents. A favorite tactic is to make an assertion that cannot be disproved and then claim that the inability to disprove it makes it true. They go out of their way. I mean, again, it's too painful sometimes to talk about some of the evil that was done against me and my family. They make insatiable demands. Antagonists are never satisfied. No amount of appeasement on your part or the congregation as a whole will suffice. Instead of calming antagonists, attempts to placate them only encourage them to make more demands. Many antagonists fight until there is nothing left but rubble. Sometimes even that doesn't stop them. You know, I remember one of my antagonists. His name was Dave. And I remember going to his house. And I sat down, and for an hour, I, I was answering every question he had, every single question he had. It was a Wednesday night. I had somebody else taking over prayer meeting for me. And I went to, this, to his home, and we sat down and we talked. And I left there, and I literally... Half a block down the road, I took my fists and I started pounding on the steering wheel. And I said, yes, 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 one down, 20 to go. (laughs) The next day, he took one little phrase that I had said and he accused me of lying and me being deceitful. They will attack They're selfish in nature. They tear down rather than build up. At times, most of us are selfish or headstrong. Without excusing such behavior, we can be sure that occasional surly behavior does not make an antagonist. Now listen carefully. This is what he writes. What separates us from antagonists is the ferociousness of the attacks 
and the insatiable or tenacious quality that drags out problems interminably. You know what I came to the realization? I came to the realization that many of my antagonists in that church were not Christians. And I know that that might blow some of you out of the water, but you've never been through a conflict if you don't think there's non-Christians in a church. I remember the church sent my wife and I to a retreat center. It was called Moorhead Manor in Ohio. It was owned by Agnes Moorhead, the actress. Do you remember her? She was? She was on Bewitched. She was, what was her name? Eldora? or Whatever, yeah. Anyway, she owned this farm, really beautiful farm, and she built it as a retreat center for her and her husband to go to. She was a Christian, by the way, a very committed Christian, and then donated that property upon her death to a number of organizations, and at that time it was being run by uh, Bob Jones University. But she would take her husband there to, to dry out. He was an alcoholic, and so she would get him out of Hollywood in California and take him there for a couple of months so that he could get sober. Well, there was a counselor there, wonderful guy. His name was Jim Binney. And I can remember we got there, and the first night we got there was on a Sunday night. We left Sunday night after church. We drove there, and we got there around midnight. And I can still remember to this day, walking in the room, a beautiful, beautiful home, beautiful room, literally gold-plated, faucets in the bathroom. I mean, it was really nice. And my wife and I walked in and we dropped our suitcases. And I remember my wife said, so this is what prison looks like. And we just hugged each other and we cried. Because we thought, why are we having to go through this? Well, anyway, the next morning we went and I wasn't in Jim's office more than a minute. And I was literally bawling. I'm an emotional person, and I'll tell you a little bit later. Well, I'll tell you now. One of the things I've learned is I will show my emotion in the presence of my friends, but I will never show my emotion in the presence of my enemies. My enemies never saw weakness in me. Never. But I bawled like a baby in the presence of people I trusted. So I hope I can trust you. But I remember Jim... We were talking and I said, Jim, I just can't believe that Christians would act this way. And he said the most helpful thing. He said, Doug, what makes you think they're Christians? And I thought, hello. He said, every New Testament letter that was written to churches was written to churches that had problem people in it. And why do we think that 2,000 years later from the first century church that all of a sudden, those problems are behind us. They are not. They are still very much there. Titus 1.16 says this, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Third, admonish and hold the leadership accountable for the ministry of confrontation and church discipline. Romans 16, 17 through 19 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Let me drop down Titus 3.9-11 says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissension, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable as, and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You know, I remember candidating at a church after I left this church in Michigan. After I left that church, I became a regional director for 13 years for the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. I still pastored some little tiny churches 
in both Michigan and Oklahoma. But I wasn't full-time in the pastorate at that time. I was pastoring, so every Sunday I would go and, and preach at these, these smaller churches. And I remember thinking, I might want to go back into the pastorate full-time. And I remember candidating at a church, and it was I was still pretty wounded. And so I wasn't as eager to get back into the pastorate as I was about 10 years later. And one of the questions that I asked them is that if in the years that they had been there, had they ever exercised church discipline? And they said no. And I then asked them, which is the real kicker for, you know, for me to get the job if I wanted it, was, so you mean to tell me there's no sinful people in this church? Erwin <laughs> Lutzer, in his wonderful book, if you don't have it, you ought to get it, Pastor to Pastor, he writes the following. He says, the board must keep its members from becoming unruly. This scenario has happened a thousand times. One board member, usually the official church boss, itches for recognition and control. He begins to oppose the pastor and pretends to speak for others. The other board members are intimidated. After all, they reason, he's been in the church for years, and his wife plays the piano. So they sit by, hoping the problem will go away. But it only gets worse, and discord spreads. In one church, an elder ruined the ministry of three pastors by using the same strategy. He would befriend the pastor in the first year and then turn against him in the second. Because of his influence, he generated enough opposition to force a showdown. The board was at a loss to deal with the problem, so the members let it go on. Unfortunately, the board usually believes the pastor is more expendable. Pastors come and go, but the elders stay forever. The board must have the strength to discipline its own members. If not, church leaders adopt a double standard and the work of God is hindered. Kenneth Hauck says this regarding church discipline. He says, For too long antagonists have operated successfully in congregations. They find that their risks in a congregation are relatively small with, a few, with few repercussions because people don't believe they have the right to stop them. Now listen carefully. Many Christians believe they are to love one another at all costs, to live peaceably with each other, and not to confront another Christian. Friend, we've got to not be afraid to discipline people in the church. And it is becoming an increasing problem. Carl Laney, who taught, I think it was at Multnomah in Portland, Oregon, writes this, The church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester. As an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanism, so the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social, moral, and spiritual change. This illness is due, at least in part, to a neglect of church discipline. And that is true. Number four, seek the support and encouragement of others. You can't make it alone. I remember going to a pastor's meeting when I was going through the conflict. And you know how you quickly go around the room? There were probably about 15 of us. And providentially, I was the last one to introduce myself. And I said who I was, and I said, pray for me, I said, we are going through such conflict at our church. I can't believe it. And I can still to this day remember those pastors gathering around me, laying hands on me, and praying for me. I'm blessed to come from a family of six children. My dad had five sons and one daughter. All five sons are in the pastorate. My sister, or were, they're retired now. My sister didn't have any sense, and she married a preacher. 
And I can remember the encouragement that my brothers gave me. I can remember my twin brother, Dan, calling me up one day and he said, Doug, I've got a Bible verse for you. And it was Isaiah 54, 17. And it says, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servant of the Lord, and their vindication is from me. I had a dear friend who's now in heaven. He was a chaplain. He was an IFCA chaplain. His name was Stan Giles. And he had gone through some conflicts. And I can remember he came out to to visit us in Michigan. And we were sitting in the room. He just came out, and he was there overnight. He came in the afternoon, and he left at noon the next day. And we were talking about what I was going through, and I can still remember him saying this. He said, Doug, let me ask you a question. He said, are you having an affair? I said, no. He said, is Connie? I said, no. He said, is your daughter Darcy pregnant? And I said, no. He said, are your kids selling drugs? And I said, no. And he said, well, Doug, so basically all you've got is a problem on the job. (laughs) And then he said, remember this. He said, all they can do is fire you. And then he said, Doug, they can't kill you. He said, that's against the law, and they'll go to jail. (laughs) You know, Stan was a great guy. He had the way of putting it right on the bottom shelf. That was so good. I loved him. Number five, document as much as possible. If you're going through a conflict, phone calls, visits, letters, document what... Like I said, I've got a file, honestly, that is this thick. I'll show you some stuff. And I don't know why I've kept it, but I I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. Number six, be very, very, very careful what you write, say, and who you trust. Don't write letters. All they will do is be picked apart. You're wasting your time. If you get a long, lengthy letter from someone, simply send them a note that says, Dear George, I received your letter, and then sign your name. I have here in my hand a letter that was sent to the entirety of this church. It consists of five pages and... This is all of the wrongs that were done. And the attachment is this lengthy, I don't know how many pages it was. This is um, seven pages of the chronology of all of the wrongs that were done. And I was looking over the names of some of these people and I thought, wow. These were the spiritual leaders of the church. Far from it. Don't write letters. Be careful who you talk to and what you say. I hesitate to say this, but I'm going to go ahead. My wife will rebuke me later, but that's okay. I remember talking to the chairman of the deacon board. We had two boards, elders and deacons. His name was Dave. He was a guy I thought I could trust. And we were walking down the hallway... And he was talking about the conflict. And I finally turned to him and I said, Dave, if the elders of this church had the blank to do what was right, we wouldn't be in this situation. And that blank word rhymes with fall and call. And I'll let you figure it out from there. That was the only thing I ever regretted saying. Because you know what? He went and repeated it to everybody. And then I, in that meeting that I was talking about where there were in the room with about double the size of number in this room, I was confronted with that. And this woman was acting so pious, and she said, I just don't think our pastor should talk like that and use guttural language. Well, I thought, yeah, she's probably right. And I looked at the guy who had betrayed my confidence, and I said, Veronica, I said, I want you to know that I said that to one person and I said it to someone and then I looked at him that I thought I could trust and somebody who was my friend but obviously they're not 
Should I have said that? Probably not. The Bible's pretty clear. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But you know what? I never argued. I never raised my voice. I never slammed my fist on the table. My dad used to say, kill them with kindness. And he's right. 1 Peter 2, 18-24 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. You know, I remember when I was preparing this talk, and I've given it now three times, I called my children, and I was asking them. We have three adult children. The oldest is 44, and the youngest is, I said, four children. Three sons and one daughter. I got confused. Yes, we do. Thank you, Connie. Our oldest son is what? 44? How old is Douglas? 44, and our youngest is 38. And I asked my kids, because they went through this. They were, they were in grade school, junior high, high school, whatever. They, one was just getting ready to go to college. And I remember asking my son David, who's 42 years old, he's a Tulsa police officer. I said, did you ever remember us getting angry or doing anything? He said, no. He said, the only thing I remember was one night mom bursting into tears at dinner and just having to walk to her. Listen, here's what we need to remember. You are being given an opportunity to display the character of Christ. Don't blow it. People are watching And I can honestly say, and I don't want to sound like the hero of my story, but the only thing I ever regret saying and doing was that one statement. One. And that was it. Number seven. Uh Uh-oh. Why is that? Here we go. Keep your eyes open and your ears to the ground. Be aware of what is happening. Pay attention to the observation of trusted church members. When people you trust and respect make assertions about those who might be waving red flags, you would do well to listen to what they have to say. I remember one Sunday afternoon we were over at some good friends' home. And I love to play golf. And I had my golf clubs with me, so I went out and I pulled my driver out. We were in the backyard and he was... I was swinging my golf club, and he was swinging his. And I remember just before I swung the golf club, I said, you know, Kurt, sometimes I feel like I could get fired from this church at any moment. Fully expecting him to say, oh, no, Doug, that's not going to happen. They love you. And him saying, you know, I think you might be right. (laughs) And I literally stopped. And it was like, what are you talking about? And he proceeded to tell me things that were going on behind the scenes. Sometimes you may sense that something is wrong, a vague uneasiness that certain individuals cannot be trusted. Listen to them. Listen to that sixth sense. Listen to your wife. Our wives, gentlemen, are far better judges of character than we are. If she says... You know, you need to avoid that woman. Avoid that woman. She is a lot smarter than any of us, our wives are. Number eight, create create an environment for anti-antagonists. Work towards having effective policies and procedures in place at the church so that will give an antagonist less of an opportunity to wreak havoc in the congregation. You know what the stupidest thing To put on the agenda at an annual meeting is additional business. (laughs) No. I love the fact that yesterday during our business meeting, Tom Zobra said, you know, the agenda is set. If you wanted to add something to the agenda that needed to be discussed, he said you had 30 days to do it, 30 days prior. I I even have that policy... I I trust my elders now implicitly so we can talk openly and freely. But, you know, additional business, and how many are here pastors? Okay. 
How many times have you been at an elder meeting where you just are getting ready to end the meeting and some elder throws something out on the table and it's like, George, why didn't you bring that up earlier? You know, I have a standard rule when it comes to elder meetings, especially when they're at night. When it gets to be about 9 o'clock, I always say, gentlemen, 4 o'clock comes awfully early. And they'll often say, well, do you have to get up at 4? And I said, no, I just said 4 o'clock comes awfully early. (laughs) So, have in place procedures. Establish functional channels for feedback. Create job descriptions. Establish a broad base of responsibility. Discipline as necessary. Establish a unified front as elders. Number nine. I want to make sure we have opportunity for some questions. Admit that there may come a time when you are so wounded, so hurt, that it might be best to leave. Although resignation is usually unnecessary, it is still one alternative for dealing with an antagonistic situation. When is it time to leave? When you know you've made a serious mistake. None of us is perfect. When a significant majority is against you. When you've lost your effectiveness as a leader. When staying poses a risk to your physical, emotional, and spiritual health, as well as that of your wife and children. Like I said, I am blown out of the water by the grace of God that my children are still in the church. And they're not just in the church, they're active in the church. And, and it's wonderful. When you do feel that you need to leave, be honest. Use that as an opportunity to educate the people. Leave no time bombs behind. Arrange for an exit interview with appropriate leaders before you resign. Do your best to leave on your timetable, not theirs especially if you have small children. And five, sincerely apologize if you've been in the wrong in any way. Now one more point, and it's this. Realize that truth and time march hand in hand. Someday you and I are going to be rewarding, and suffering has an expiration date. And God will be your judge. I remember when we were going through this conflict, my wife and I were reading for our devotions together, and it came from 2 Timothy 4, and it says this, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen. What I've learned is this, the Lord is never more near to you when you are suffering for His sake. And when I left that church, three amazing things happened. Number one, there were two elderly, godly, godly women in that church, Irene and Vera who went through everything. In fact, they were the ones who started the church shortly after World War II as a Sunday school in in that area. Later they were put in nursing homes. One of them was in a nursing home. The other went to live with her daughter and son. And their families had me do the funerals. And that was a profound vindication to me. And I can still remember... I was in the parking lot at my son's high school. I was doing security for an event that was there. And Connie called me and she said, Vera just passed away. I got a call from the family. And I remember I hung up the phone and I thought, boy, I would sure love to do her funeral. And about 15 minutes later, the family called and they said, Pastor, Irene wanted you to do her funeral. And it was a vindication because nobody challenged these women. They were were godly. They were discerning. second thing that happened is there was a dear woman named Olga who really betrayed us. I mean, she really turned on us in a big, big way. 
And I remember it was a Saturday night. All of a sudden there was a phone call, and I answered it. And it was Olga. And I said, hi, Olga, how you doing? And she said, fine, how's the family? And we talked for maybe 15 minutes. And then she said, she said, I, I'd rather I said, Olga, why, why did you call? And she said, oh, oh, I need Pat McKay's phone number. Do you have Pat McKay's phone number? <laughs> she had Pat McKay's phone number. And then at the end, she said, Pastor, I just want you to know that I love you. And I said, Olga, I love you too. We really do. And we hung up. Two months later, Olga was dead. Unbeknownst to me at the time of her call, she had terminal cancer and she was actually in the hospital. And that was Olga's way of wanting to clear the deck and ask for forgiveness. Now she didn't have to say, by the way, Pastor, I really want to ask forgiveness from you. I don't make people do that. The third thing that happened, remember I said that the third mistake I made at the church was hiring a minister of music that gave red light after red light, a red flag after red flag, and I ignored him. This guy was so talented. I mean, he was good. He was good at leading worship. He had a pulpit presence that was par excellent. But he had a personality that was just a problem, and I had no business hiring him. We were back there, and we bumped in to them after church of all places. And Dan and his wife were there, and their daughter, Alicia. And Alicia, at this time, was married. She was in her early 20s. And later, I told Connie, I said, did you notice just something about Alicia? that There was just a godliness about her. And I'll never forget, Dan gave me his business card. And he said, Doug, he said, I want you to give me a call when you get back to Oklahoma. And he said, I'd like to talk to you. We got back to Oklahoma, and I called Dan. Connie was on her way to Curves, which is a place where ladies exercise. And as she was leaving, I said, I'm going to call Dan. And she said, good luck. (laughs) And I called Dan, and he apologized. And I'll never forget, he said that Alicia, his daughter, finally had the discernment to confront him. And he said, I realize what a phony fraud I had been all my life. Dan later sent me this email. It came that afternoon. He said, Doug, thanks so much for calling. It was really great to talk with you. I look forward to seeing you in person sometime. I'd love to keep corresponding by email also. I hope you share all my regrets with Connie. One thing I forgot to say, please forgive. You know, I can honestly say that I have been vindicated at everything. I'm not perfect. And again, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. I don't want to be the hero of my story. But by the grace of God, we got through it. And we were profoundly hurt. I don't know how many of you remember, but it was about eight years ago that Rick Warren's son, Matthew, took his life. He did so on April of 2013. And I remember Rick Warren said this, in the garden of God's grace, even broken trees bear fruit. I am here this morning as a broken tree. But by the grace of God, I have continued to bear fruit. I apologize if I showed emotion. But if you've gone through that, You know what I'm talking about. And some of you have gone through other kinds of pain. We've not gone through pain as it relates to our family. God in His grace has been so good in that area. But in relationships with church people, it has been tough. Now we are now at a church that it's heaven. It is so God. And I'm so glad I'm ending my ministry at that kind of a church. We have just a moment for a few questions. I apologize for going on so long, but I'll be more than happy to talk to you privately if any of you would like. Anybody questions? Oh, don't forget to take the books. I do not want to take them home. Okay? Um, So if you know somebody who's going through a conflict, that book will help you.
and I've got my contact information as well as a little note from the elders uh, that wanted to just share that. Anybody with a question? Observation? Yes, sir. Just a quick question. The conflicts went through. Uh, were they explicitly doctrinal or kind of uh, more personal? Everything's covered by Boy. personal, personal, personal. Personal, personal. No doctrine. Nothing. Nothing. Other than the fact that these probably were pagans, but, you know, what can I say? <laughs> but excellent question. I mean, it was... It is, do we have anybody from Michigan? Okay, I can say this then. Of course it's being recorded, but that's okay. One of the things that I think happens in the southeast corner of Michigan is you have a mindset there of union versus management. And people distrust management. I mean, you've got the United Auto Workers and, you know, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, you name it. They're just out to screw the employee. And that's just the mindset. And people just didn't trust leadership. Now, I think that's changed some. But at that time, in that part of the community because we had a lot of blue-collar workers. There was just a mindset that said, we don't trust management. They're just going to screw us over. Excellent question. Thanks for asking. Somebody else? Anybody? Yes, sir. So, to that same question, how do you effectively deal with a doctrinal dilemma as opposed to a personal? You know, I've always found those to be so much, so so much easier I mean because I and I tell people this you know the Bible says come now let us reason together and if people will be reasonable I will sit down with an open Bible and and let people know why I hold this position and if they can defend their position I'll gladly listen but I will try to show the error of where they're thinking and for the most part I think if you do it in a gracious way People have, have been very receptive to it. Additionally, I think we have to be very careful what issues we're willing to fight over. I've often said one of the challenges that is that too many people have what I call a one-string fiddle. I mean, they get on this one issue. I love the story about the pastor who was every sermon was on the importance of water baptism, water baptism, water baptism. Well, his deacons got so disgusted with him, they finally gave him a passage of scripture and they said, we want you to preach on this. And the guy got up and, you know, there wasn't an ounce of water in this verse. There, you couldn't get water out of it. And he got up and he said, you know, this is the most amazing verse in all the Bible. This is one of the few verses that doesn't talk about water baptism. And speaking of water baptism, <laughs> and, you know, people are like that. So, anybody else? Yes, sir. One of the things that we kind of tell people is the 640-some churches in our town, and if this issue really means a lot to you, and it's going to frustrate you hearing different in the moment, maybe it's best if you're in any other church. We want this about God's work, not, not just our work. I tell people this. Don't lock the back door. Don't nail it shut. Make sure that every church has a back door that people can leave quietly. I've had people come and they'll say, you know, Doug, we, we consider coming to your church if you just change this. And I look them right in the eye and I say, well, guess what? We're not changing for you. This is who we are. And you might find yourself so much more comfortable attending such and such a church. And I have no problem letting people know that. One more, if we've got time. Yes, sir. Michael. How important do you feel is a well-defined doctrinal statement of church membership to avoid these issues that we need Boy, it, it's critical. It's critical. We, we, our members are supposed to uh, have read and be familiar with our doctrinal position. It's the right in line with the IFCA. And we even go beyond that. We have some things that as far as distinctives as to our hermeneutic, as to creation, as to uh, sanctity of human life and human sexuality right there. And I, I forget what we call them, distinctives or something like that. 
So, you know, people know. And I always tell people, you know, you're always welcome to come to this church. I want people who don't necessarily agree with us to attend. Just don't don't um, peddle your peanuts, as my dad used to say. How many of you knew my dad? Anybody here? Wow. I'm pretty sure I was conceived at an IFCA convention. <laughs> my dad loved the IFCA. <laughs> There were, there, there, were, there were three things that you never said anything negative about when I was growing up. The U.S. Navy, because my dad was in the Navy. He was at Pearl Harbor when the war broke out. Secondly, the IFCA. And thirdly, Billy McCarroll. My dad loved Billy McCarroll. And he was one of the founders of the IFCA. And uh, just such a good man. Let me pray, and then we'll out of here. Father, thank you for just giving me the strength to get through this talk. We know there's still a lot of emotion just beneath the surface, and I'm grateful that it was able to be kept under control. Bless we pray these precious people. We pray that if there are some going through conflict, of know of somebody in conflict, that, Father, some of the things that they've learned this morning or will learn from uh, that excellent book and resource that is now going to be theirs, that, Father, they would take it to heart. Continue to bless our time together, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, Amen. Thank you.